Sometimes I like to go glamping. Imagine that. Two ply tires don't cut it on the edge of the tundra, and we had two flats. It's kind of tough to taper it all down. You could come at this thing from several different directions. If we have any listeners who uh, are photographers happen to work for TSA, we'd appreciate if you keep that little tidbit to yourself. <laughs> I don't think any of us for the next three or four years are going to have to buy any oatmeal. Breakfast is covered for all. Boom. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. For this week's show, your hosts are Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and myself, Mark Raycroft. Before we get rolling, I'd like to take a moment to thank all of you listeners who have been sending in your positive comments and questions. The increased interaction is welcomed by all of us. Today's show is one that was sparked a few weeks back when we did our Pro Tip Bonanza episode. The idea of a travel tip extravaganza came up during that podcast. And with all the positive feedback that you sent to us for the Pro Tip show, we decided to do an entire episode where we share insider travel tips that we've picked up over the years, or in some cases, decades. We'll give you time to grab a pen and paper or your tablet Hey, Michael, how's it going? Pretty Welcome good. back to Denver. Yeah, back in Denver. I was just in Florida. It was pretty nice, 80 degrees, walking around in shorts, doing a little work down there. and then. Uh, but it was a quick trip, just four days. Back to Denver. 40, it's uh, like 50 degrees here today, though. So pretty nice. But we're okay. supposed to get snow tomorrow. Sidebar. We're going to sidebar going off on a tangent here. I want to hear... <laughs> about what you were putting up on Instagram on Wild and Exposed feed this week with that new lens and the Sony mirrorless camera, the Sigma. You went out and did a test on that. Oh, man. First of all, why why a Sigma? I, was it the 2.8 that sold you on that? That's what it is, right? Yeah, so I was using a 120 to 300 2.8, and that's just a lens that I had. So well, I had, had that. It. Yeah. Yeah, that right. lens was already... I use that for the red when I'm shooting video. So it's a nice little compromise to get to 2.8. If I use the 200 to 400, the Canon that I have, it's only an F4. So that little extra bit of light. And it's a super sharp lens. So um, I never, ever have shot that lens on a still camera. So I wasn't sure how it was going to perform. And I st- I'm still not. I'm, I'm like hot and then cold and then hot. And then cold. So the Instagram was post was at a hot point. <laughs> and then it keeps going up and down. It's like a big old oscillation. So I like the camera. I've shot quite a bit now with it stills wise. And it's pretty awesome. It's really good with the Sony glass. I don't, I haven't tried yet a bigger lens. And I think they have a 100 to 400. It's four, five, five, six or four, five, six, something. I don't know what it is. I'm told that that works really well, but I was also told when I bought this camera that it works pretty good with an adapter with another lens. And then I had read something somewhere that said, if you use a Sigma adapter with the Sigma lens on that Sony body, that it was going to do pretty good. So I put 
I had what happened was there's a couple of adapters for that Sony camera, so you can buy a Metabones adapter, or a Sigma adapter, or probably even a couple others. Those are the two I'm familiar with. When I bought the camera, I picked up the Sigma adapter just because that's the only one they had in stock, and I thought, well, I'll just try it out because I thought originally I would try to put the Canon glass on it, but I'd never done that. So when I read this article about the Sigma, I thought, okay, let's take that for a test drive. The best way to do it, I think in another post that we put up on Instagram was a good way to check your autofocus or to get really good at autofocus is to go out and shoot flying birds. And in the wintertime in Colorado, you can generally, if it's cold enough and and the ponds are all frozen, you can generally find some geese that are flying in and out of small openings in ponds. And I have a couple of places like that close by. So I went down there and I thought, okay, I'm just going to shoot these geese and get them coming in and out. So I got down there and I shot some, and I never had the perfect scenario. I mean, it's, sometimes it's wherever that opening in the ice is at as to how they fly in and fly out, and then obviously the wind has a lot to do with it too. So I didn't have the perfect conditions to get the perfect shot of these geese, but I was getting shots of flying geese, and it was holding. The Sigma glass was was following the focus, and it was doing pretty good, and I thought, wow, maybe this is the ticket. So I played around with it for, I don't know, three, four, or 500 shots, Got the got them to work, and then I came back and looked at them, and they were pretty good. Nothing super close and nothing coming in super fast, but what I did see, I liked. So then I thought, the very next day, we were actually doing a shoot for another podcast that we do on training dogs, and we had to shoot some dogs with like little training fetch tools in, in their mouths. And the coolest shot is obviously a dog running right at you, right? So I whipped out the the trusted 120 to 300 2.8 Sigma and I'd, I'd lock on a dog coming at me. Didn't even come close to hold, you know, right. you know, as fast as those dogs were running uh-huh. at us. Right. We'd throw it, they'd get out there, they'd come back and they'd run right back to you. Right. And you can just lock on pretty easily. And that camera, I mean, I didn't try too many cause it just wasn't doing it. I tried it three or four times and it just, it would lock on when the dog was going after the the training device. And then it would, as soon as it turned around and come back at me, it would lose it. So not fair because I only tried it three or four times. We had a limited amount of time. So I quickly just put that back in the truck and grabbed the, the 200 to 400 Canon. And that camera for me has been amazing. I mean, I can get these dogs running full blast at me and they're tack sharp every time as long as you got the shutter speed what was the body on that then the canon 1dx mark ii okay you could switch yeah so it's the top top of the line body and and with canon it was just dead on so it's obviously going to take a lot more trial and i think if i get out there and try some big game i think with big game it'd be fine because you generally don't have i mean yeah you can have it but generally you don't have a a moose or an elk or a deer or whatever running 900 million miles an hour straight at you. So I think you'd be fine, especially if you're shooting just portrait stuff out in the environment. It'd be good. Because when something is stationary and you lock on with the focus, it's tack sharp for sure. Right. It's but just yeah, that I'm movement. surprised with that new that setup should handle that, right? It doesn't. Could there be a setting in there? I know when Nikon, when I get a new body, the focus tracking, I've got to go into the menu and play with that because the continuous focus is not set up the way I like it. And it would not, exactly what you're saying, if I have an animal, no matter what it is, coming straight toward me, no way, it doesn't. But when I make the adjustment 
to the autofocus tracking, it gets it bang on. Is I wonder if there's something in the in the Sony and, and it's the AR73, right? Was the camera A7R3? Yeah, A7R3. Yeah, they've got that 3D. Says, why is it AR73 when I look it up? Well, maybe that's a A7 Canadian version. R3. <laughs> it's what are you metric. talking about you, you want to go into this stuff and talk about zz top right now <laughs> yeah no i definitely could be something in the menu like i said i didn't give it a fair shake when we were doing the fo- following of the dog stuff because i just had limited time i had a couple hours and i wanted to get as much as i could and i knew that yeah. the cannon would work so there's probably some stuff in the menu the other thing that i didn't try that i need to try is and we may have talked about this on a podcast. When I first bought the camera, they had a firmware upgrade. I don't know. Did we talk about this on the podcast? I know you and I, have, no. all of us have talked about it offline, but I'm not sure if we talked about it on the podcast. They had a version 2 or whatever the next version of the software was. But then there was problems with that. The day I got it, within 15 minutes, that download was available and then not available. So I elected not to even mess with it and wait till they got the new one out. Well, since that time, which has probably been, what, a month? I don't remember when I actually got that camera. That second, or that firmware is re-available now, and I haven't downloaded that. And I did hear that there's some autofocus improvements in that new software, so that could be another thing that I need to try out. So I'm not done trying it. I think, like I said, I think it would work as is without doing anything. It would be fine for a lot of the wildlife stuff we do, just as long as it's not cruising at you see everybody that i see that's using it for birds birds in flight is using that 3d there's 3d focus follow focus and i mean that's just one of your options in the in the focus menu so you might try that as well i don't know if you were using that but it looks like it works pretty slick yeah i'll have to try it and see if it works if that's something that works with the sony only the sony glass or if it will work with the Canon glass. The other thing I should try, if I was going to do a true comparison and a true test, I would put that Sigma lens, which it's funny because that Sigma lens is a Canon mount. So I can go directly to a Canon without an adapter. With the Sony, I have to use an adapter. So it wouldn't be a true test. But I've never used that 120 to 300 directly on the Canon to know how well it performs on the Canon either. So... Mm-hmm that it's it's so hard to say i mean it could be so many things i just was like so excited when i came back from the geese and i'm like wow this stuff is actually kind of sharp and looks pretty good so maybe there's maybe that's the ticket and it's a pretty sweet little combination if you get 2.8 on a 300 millimeter lens and have the 120 you probably heard my ring doorbell i don't know it's probably a bird flying by and my ring doorbell went off now the other thing that i didn't like about the sony but I think you can figure it out. It's awful small. So like your pinky falls off, you know, you just, you don't, you can't even grip the whole thing. So your pinky's falling off, which that's not a big deal. It's just one of those things. The other thing is is when moving the focus point around, it's not nearly as fast as my Canon. I can move. I am, but see, here's the other thing. I've been using the Canon. 600 and some focus points in that thing. Yeah, and I well, I've been using the Canon so long. I just it's just second nature, right? And my hands just fall on every button. I don't have to look at anything when I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. With the Sony, I'm still it's it's so, and I guess maybe that's more to the small comment is everything is so compact on that thing that you know when I grip it, it's not in the same spots as I would grip 
a cannon body, so it's a little different. I have a, I have a hack for you that will help with that problem, with the dexterity problem with your hand, is that uh, each day at noon, if you have tea in a teacup and you take your pinky and, and you just point it up as you have your tea, like, yeah, like you're doing with the Perrier water right now. You do that and every day, and then you'll just get used to having that pinky just hanging out, you know, out yeah, to the so side. Yeah, it'll be off. Now, I haven't done that. I've just heard about that. I read that. So well, don't just, you guys do tea in Canada every day at noon? Uh, we do things at noon. I, do, I personally don't do tea. No, I do take a break from the monitor, but not not tea. I'm still probably drinking coffee at noon. That's, you know, when you're on a shoot like that and you need to produce, it's hard to get everything lined up in one go, right, with that equipment. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. play with it some more and give us some more feedback on a future podcast. I definitely will, and I think there's potential. I really do. I'm not ready to just say, no, nah, this isn't going to work. For video, too, like we've said before, I've used it on a couple of shoots now, and it's brilliant. Especially when you pair it with like a Ronin S. I don't -hmm. know that there's many better combinations for that moving video kind of thing, but I think it definitely has potential for stills. It's just going to take a little bit more playing. Yeah. 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 And I did get a chance to use it on silent mode. Oh, and And that's pretty interesting. It's amazing. You know, you get so used to for however many years we've been shooting and you hear that sound, right? And then all of a sudden there's like, you just click the button and there's no sound, but you're banging away on pictures. And so it's a little different, but it could really come in handy, right? In a blind or in all kinds of situations. It's pretty like cool. When I'm sneaking up on Ron and he's photographing something and I'm getting some B roll that I don't want him to know I'm getting. Or when he's snoring, that when he's laying back in the car, when he's out <laughs> like a light bulb. I'm in the car. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of Ron, so Ron is actually in the field coming to us via Skype in the wilderness with his wingman, Heath. How's it going? It's going Bring us great. up to speed. We waited for the roads to open and then made a quick trip over to the west side of the state. Uh, when the roads open, we have seen just about everything you could possibly see over here. Just about. There's a few species that we're still, uh, still looking for, but it's... It, there's a lot of snow on the west. It's a little bit different on the on the eastern plains. It's it's pretty sparse, but there is no lack of the white stuff over here. There's a good four feet on the level in in places, so they're not lacking. But uh, it's uh, very mild temperature wise, so it's about 30 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's uh, you know about zero Celsius. So it is very comfortable and yeah we've just had a good time so far um got a couple full days and then another half day like we had today but we're we're looking forward to getting out and finding something new so you say west side of the state and you said that the roads were closed were the roads closed because of wind and drifting or what was it yeah the there was a couple big storms interstate 80 for instance because of the economic impact they never close interstate 80 and they had so many cars off the road and the, such high winds um, that the interstate was actually closed for 36 hours whoa so they hardly ever close it even for a few hours just to clear up an accident and then get it back open again but they could not keep up with the winds i i sent you guys i sent uh you guys a uh, wind chart for the state of Wyoming. And there were 
70 mile an hour winds in several places and then up in Clark, um, which is in the very northwest corner, just I guess it would be just east of the Yellowstone National Park boundary. Uh, Clark, Wyoming had winds of 112 miles an hour two days ago. It was it was pretty insane. And there's just a there's a canyon that every the wind funnels down and they they have winds higher over 100 multiple times every year. But 112 is. I don't know what category a hurricane, but it's definitely hurricane force. wind. <laughs> <laughs> Well, good. So you've been, you've been seeing lots of stuff then already, and you got what two more yeah. days? Yeah, yeah, got a couple more days left. So I'm I'm looking forward to it. It's a it's a magical place over here, Teton County, the whole, well, the whole western side of the state, but the area that we're in right now, there you, you could see anything at any time, except bears. They're asleep, under okay. four feet of snow. Right. <laughs> So well, keep us posted. We look forward to it on social media. Yeah. I think you should put that picture up today that you sent of Heath glassing just to show the landscape. And yeah, I put it on my sto- my Instagram story. Um, just yeah, so everybody could see the snow. Yeah, serious. Yeah. There's got to be places where it's not that deep because how on earth would the animals be moving if it was that deep? Right, you wouldn't have any photo well, ops. I'll tell you the the game warden. I was I was talking to a friend of mine. He's a game warden over here today, and he put us on this uh, bull bison and this bull has not moved more than 30 yards and that's you know 30 yard radius because he just can't he's using his head to you know they use their heads move the snow out of the way to get to the grass but this bull is in rough shape and it, it could be a very tough winter over here well if it lasts so what's the long range does it look like it's going to let up and have a melt or I mean, you don't want too fast to melt either. But. Not, not for a while. Okay. So it's it's and you know the spring generally is when we get the majority of our snow in Wyoming. So, I you know these guys could could be seeing snows like they haven't seen in a while. I get supposedly the last time they've seen snows like this on the level is 1978. No kidding. So wow. yeah, barely remember those days. I, you know, in 1978, I remember very well because I was just, I, I was just a young guy, but we had to airdrop. We couldn't get in and out. We had to snowmobile in and out of the ranch and we had to airdrop. Uh, and I thought that was the coolest thing in the world, but it was very expensive alfalfa into the cattle because we couldn't get cows down off the mountain and they had to go through the expense of hiring a plane and every rancher in the county had to do it it was a pretty crazy winter up there in 1978 wow good memory i couldn't tell you what happened in 1978 i'm not sure if i was there that's the only <laughs> i i know you were older than me in 1978 no oh oh <laughs> all right I don't think you are, but anyway. Oh, I, I, I actually, I think I am. We'll have that conversation post podcast. <laughs> so as far yeah. as things in Ontario, it's definitely winter here. But before I get into anything, I want to start with a shout out to my brother Darren. He and his partner Audrey welcomed their son Emery into the world today. So I became an uncle again today. Congrats! And yeah, they missed Valentine's Day by one. But uh, I suppose for his sake, right? 
<laughs> I was trying to think yesterday if that was good or bad. Get roses for his birthday for the rest of his life. There you go. Right. <laughs> All right. Good he held on then. Here it's just been nuts. We've had tons of snow. Not that much snow, thankfully. Not enough to stress the wildlife. And then we had a very quick thaw today, way above zero, and streams everywhere, and now it's freezing again. So those fluctuations aren't good either, but uh, it's it's definitely midwinter here. So let's move on. And guys, I want to talk about something else that is on the radar for this podcast, especially when it's going to go live, that I'm excited about each year. And I just want to touch on it because I think it's so cool. And I think a lot of our audience would enjoy it is the Iditarod. Now, it starts... It's, they call it the last great race on Earth, and it starts on March 2nd of this year, 2019, and it's from Anchorage, or more specifically Willow, but it, they do a run day through Anchorage the day before in Alaska, and then they start at Willow and go to Nome, and it is an epic adventure, and you can follow it very easily at on their website. at the at, It's just simply Iditarod. I-D-I-T-A-R-O-D.com. They have all kinds of cool info, backgrounds on the mushers. And something that I've really become engaged with the last few years is that they track each musher. So when the race is on, you can live time where they are and how they're doing. And what's interesting to me about this is it's clear over the years I've been following this as a fan. And specific mushers have clearly different strategies in how they run this race and to see which strategies work depending on the weather the environment is really cool and it's it's something to follow along so i want to encourage our listeners to check that out what got me hooked on the iditarod and this is something in the podcast i've been enjoying doing is mentioning a book that's really moved me that i haven't read over the years and gary paulson wrote a book called winter dance and the subtitle is The Fine Madness of Running the Iditarod. Now, this book was a bestseller. It's hugely acclaimed. If you look on Amazon or any other bookseller, you can see all the positive reviews. It's an easy, super enjoyable, and entertaining read about the Iditarod. And it, what it does is it, he summarizes, he's from northern Minnesota, and this book summarizes his first, and I, I'm not sure if he did it a second time, but the first time he ran the Iditarod race, and some of the trials and tribulations are unbelievable that he and his team go through. And as a unit, the coordination of these dogs and the mushers, it's really something to behold. So that is on the cusp of this podcast. Check it out. March 2nd, it starts, and Iditarod.com is where you can find out more information on that. I also want to touch on Facebook today, guys, because I've been dabbling in it a little bit. I've been learning a little bit more about it, and clearly it's a good tool from my perspective when it comes to promoting things. And for me, my interest is promoting our podcast because there are a lot of people on Instagram. I mean, Instagram is the visual social platform, but there are so many people that are on Facebook that aren't on Instagram. So by having a Facebook page and being able to share and promote our wild and exposed episodes, our vlogs uh, can help grow. And I want to also encourage our listeners, you know, any of you out there, please share this with your friends and colleagues and take our our Facebook uh, posts and share them along to help us grow. We would appreciate that very much as well. Now on Facebook, what I've been learning, and there was this 
young man I know through social media, through Instagram. His name's Matthew. He's a talented young photographer from Manitoba, and he was messaging me this week. And because of the last podcast, or two podcasts ago perhaps, he heard us talking about it. And he was saying the important thing to differentiate on Facebook is setting up a personal page or a business page. And he was outlining to me that he puts far more emphasis on his business page, and he sells a lot more prints through the business page than just the personal page. So I haven't had the time to, to get a business page going to look into those parameters, but my being a total novice at this Facebook thing, uh, I thought, I didn't know if you guys had any insight on that or any comments. The other thing before, I, I, I want you to answer that, but I also want to say that I've been getting more and more issues with Facebook. Unlike Instagram, people I've known for years that I've sent out, and I haven't sent many, many out necessarily, but a friend request, I'll get a text like half an hour later and say, Hey, Mark, is this really you? Because there's so much fraud going on and hacks on Facebook. I'm not going to accept it till I know it's you. But then there are other people who just accept it right away. So, I mean, I'm like, holy cow, is Facebook that, cons you know, there's words to describe it. Should I be that concerned about Facebook that there are people that I've known for years, you know, have to text me before they can accept the friend thing? So I'm surprised at the reluctancy of people to accept friends on Facebook. And I guess there's just been a lot of history and people being stuff happening. I, I don't know because I'm new at it. So any idea on the on the personal page versus the business page? I, I know, Ron, that you've you've done stuff and you've uh, put up your awesome calendars on Facebook over the years and sold them to people yeah, that way. And that, I, I will say that the way they are running their algorithms now, if it appears the way Facebook algorithm is, on your personal page, if it appears that you're trying to solicit, you're trying to get people to have an interaction with you that wouldn't be, uh, I, I guess, just a, a natural friendship type interaction, then they don't block it completely. But if you've got just for a round number of thousand people that follow you, you might have 50 of them that see it. That's Those numbers are crazy low. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's it, because, and I know that because if for 5,000, I had 5,000 between followers and friends, and about 250 of them would saw my last calendar advertisement. And so that's why I had to switch to the business page. And I find that it's because of people's reluctancy to accept anything new. The big thing about Facebook is it's, you know, it's the social platform. But now you don't even get to see your, you know, your friends. You don't even get to see their new, them on your news feed anymore because Facebook is deciding who sees what. If you have group interactions, um, all the groups will be put on your news feed, but you won't necessarily see everything that your friends post. That you're trying to keep up with so it is it's been a frustrating couple years with facebook and then the the fraud is prolific and uh, i will tell you i spent at work the better part of three days dealing with fraud and and part of it had to do with fun the financial stuff that is going on with facebook right now i i can't warn people enough do not do it and it's unfortunate because people are asking people to donate to charities for their birthdays and support this or that. And unfortunately, 
those mechanisms that they have in place are not secure enough. I just would avoid it like the plague. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. So it's it's frustrating, it, it, but so I mean, I'm, it makes me even pause. I mean, should I should I do this? Is it worth the effort to, to grow the promotions through Facebook because of these other concerns and the well, reluctancy I think, of some? You people? know, like you've touched on before, though, if you're gonna if you're going to do the promotions on Instagram, you have to have the Facebook account, right? So yeah, for that. I mean, for that reason, you, you can limit yourself as much as you'd like on Facebook. I don't. I don't know necessarily that it's the strongest platform to to grow our following. You look at Wild and Exposed, we have over 700 people that follow us. And if you look at the contacts that we get, even when you ask for an interaction, and it is a business page, you, you know, we might get 20 people that interact out of 765. And I don't think it's because those people wouldn't interact if they were actually seeing it. I think no, Facebook, we would hope there's those, a lot to learn. Statistics wouldn't be in our case, right? I mean, come right. on, we'd have to yeah, do better yeah. than that. Otherwise, why are we here, guys? I 20 out of so. 700, right? Right. No way. That doesn't, yeah. So, okay. So, yeah, it's causing me pause. I, I mean, the Facebook account has to exist for the sake of Instagram promotions. I'll keep it in place for that. And just, I'll dabble with it. But, yeah, it doesn't seem like something I want to put a lot of time in to just because of these restrictions and and your friends i mean why if for a personal page why on earth would facebook limit showing friends i, I that doesn't doesn't make sense yeah. you would think they unless it's all about data i mean do they not have enough hard drive space for the you know trillions well, of interactions or what's going on why that that honestly was part of the part of the impetus for um if you put a photos on they will limit the size of your photos. So you might, you know, you've got one that's that's edited for social media. You put it up, and because of the space that they have and the space that they require, they will limit photos, they'll limit videos. Uh, I think um, I've seen it a couple times in the videos, and, and I didn't know if it was just software-related or what because I was using the iMovie. It, it looks like one thing on my phone, but if you put it on Facebook... It's like they've almost, they took it from 1080 to 720, almost. It, it's, the quality's reduced quite a bit. Right. So, and I guess Mike can probably answer that a little bit more because he does a lot more with the video. Yeah, I think they compress it quite a bit just so that they can, you know, yeah. conserve space. But along the business page and the personal page, I think business page is cool. They don't, I think they limit you on the personal page to 5,000 friends. Mm-hmm. And then on a business page, there's no limit. You know, anybody can just go say, yeah, I like this page. So I think that's the mm-hmm. reason to have a business page and then they'll treat it as such. And I think you can put, you can still do the same thing you do on a personal page. It's just more out so you don't have your a, business. You don't have a personal page at all. You just run the I business. don't know what I have, to be honest with you. I have like okay. 17 things that I've grown over the years and, and most of my, I get a, email every day from facebook saying oh your audience hasn't seen you post anything and i i don't have the time really to sit there and play with that stuff every now and then when i'm in the office and i have an hour where i'm got a free time i will get in there and do some stuff on the wild unexposed page but i don't i hardly ever mess with my pages and i think i have almost five thousand followers on 
whatever page I have, whatever that is, I don't know. Um, but I have like a truth and legend page. I have the moral media page. I have a Michael Morrow page. I have a, I think there's an art gallery page that I did a long time ago that still exists. And I've actually tried to go in and delete some of those and I can't figure it out. Yeah, but I have not spent much time. I mean, it's, it's probably doable. I just don't want to dedicate the time to do it. If Matt has the time to uh, educate us on how to, how to compress some of those things and get more out of more bang for the buck, I guess, for lack of a better term, yeah. I'd, I'd welcome that. I was listening sure. to the Joe Rogan podcast and he was interviewing the, the guy who's the CEO of Twitter, Jack Dorsey. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about Facebook being more of a older generation thing. So, you know, all the young people tend to be on Snapchat or Instagram or some of these other social media channels, YouTube, and then Facebook tends to be the older generation and it's doing what it's supposed to do. It allows you to communicate with friends. And if you're, especially like family, I think it's pretty good at that is knowing family, especially if you're willing to go in and put in all this stuff. So if you're willing to say, Oh yeah, this is my sister and this is my aunt and this is my brother. And I've not done any of that. Cause I really didn't want to, I don't know. I just didn't feel like I needed to put that out there to the public. So I suppose if you do that and you do it like they want you to do it, but then it's like they've got this little digital footprint of you for everything. And I thought, eh, I'm not going to do that. So I don't think it hurts to play around on it. I don't think the fraud, I've never had a problem with fraud, knock on wood, but I don't play on it that much or use it that much. I guess plays the wrong word, but it just seems to me like, you getting on there and putting on a few comments or getting on there and liking somebody's post or you do find a lot of good information on there. So if you like that or you just decide you want to repost something or put up something of ours, I think that's good. I don't think you're going to run into any fraud issues. I think the fraud is only when you start dealing with the banking stuff and there's probably a hacker or two out there somehow. But I think it's pretty easy to identify the hackers. I mean, I get that on Instagram too where you'll have someone saying, will you be my friend? And you know, obviously, I just delete all those just because you just well, they have zero them. posts, zero posts. Yeah. So you can tell right. by the picture. Yeah. It's usually just something yeah. where it's just easy to tell. And I think that's the same for the most part. You know, generally, if mm -hmm. I find a person that has a picture of themselves with a camera in the woods, chances are that's probably going to be a pretty legit someone that's interested in the same thing I am. Mm -hmm. So I will tell you, one of the positives that that Facebook does offer is the ability to do these groups. And I mean, we talk all the time about finding somebody that will be willing to mentor you. And, you know, there's a, you know, for instance, there's a, a group that I belong to and I'll go give, give feedback on images. It's uh, wildlife and landscape photography for beginners. So if you're just starting out, that's a place where you can go on. And if you don't have anybody in your local community, you can go on and, and post some images in those groups and they don't have to be, you know, they'll give you homework assignments to try to increase your knowledge of photography. And then, you know, there are 10 or 12 moderators on there that'll give you feedback. That is a positive for, for people. It's a, it's a place to go learn. And so that type of community involvement, I think is, is good. I have a lot of negatives about Facebook because it used to, it used to work for me. Um, quite honestly, right. and that's why I was so late to adopt Instagram because Facebook did everything I needed. But then the changes have, uh, they've set things back quite a bit, I think. But I guess we've kicked that horse around enough. 
Well, we're all learning about it. You know, yeah. we're all different stages of the game with with different aspects. You know, it's photography or animal behavior or social media, and it's you know even with the three of us, we have you know varied backgrounds in these different areas. So it's it's and the listeners too, our audience, to communicate with them and get you know advice like I did from Matthew or or people asking us questions or who have insight. It's all it's you know it's all sharing this information. So it's important and it's just something new for me, and I'm just trying to decide whether. It, the time is justified because, you know, as Michael alluded to, we, we all have a lot going on and is it worth it? So, right. um, yeah, I'll continue to assess that, but probably won't put a whole lot of time into it. So this week, obviously, there are no individual three pro tips because we're going to do the giant travel extravaganza, but we will quickly do our question of the week. This week's question is an animal biology question rather than a camera one. I posted an image on Instagram this week of a bull moose that was running past uh, with his beard flapping close up and he had a long beard. Now, what's a moose beard? People want to know. And that's kind of where the question came from. So it's called a dewlap or a bell. A bell. So you, three terms it can be called. Now, the question that came over Instagram was what's it for and does it get bigger during the rut? Now, it does not get bigger during the rut, and what's it for has been debated amongst biologists forever. Nobody knows the exact purpose of it. Now, my wife and I were talking about it at dinner tonight, prepping for the podcast, and she jokingly asked if it was something vestigial. And I laughed and said, yes, that's what it was. It was the fifth leg. It was the short leg <laughs> you used to prop up the head and antlers of a bull while he's resting. Just kidding. It's simply a flap of skin that hangs down, covered in hide, and what it's good for is identifying individuals because they're all pretty well different. Some of the big wide bells, some of long thin ones, and males have a much more pronounced bell or moose beard than females. But as to the exact reason why they have them, nobody knows for sure. That's a question for future biologists to figure out. I want to encourage our, our listeners to send in any questions that you may have, no matter whether you're a beginner or an expert, and we will do our best to answer them all. And as always, we will feature one as the question of the week. All right, guys, travel tips. This is a fun one. I mean, and it's so important because a lot of wildlife photography means a trip somewhere, an adventure, exploring for us, for our listeners, for beginners, for experts, everybody does it. And it's they're the highlights of my year when I get to go somewhere and spend a week, two weeks, three weeks in a spot and, and on an assignment or trying to photograph, film, whatever it might be. So let's dive into our travel tips for the week. My first one's a straightforward one, but it took me a few years to adopt this method of packing my gear. All right, how do I pack my gear? Doesn't matter whether I'm driving or flying, but this is most applicable to flying. Now for me, I pack my gear like it's hockey night in Canada. What does that mean? It means I forget the rigid suitcase. And there's no need for plaid patterns or old school luggage. I go for a hockey bag. Now why? They're big, they're durable, they're pliable, 
They can easily fit my boots. They can fit a tent if I need one. They can fit a thermarest, all the clothing gear I need, and even a tripod down the middle of it. Now, they come in a variety of sizes, and the ones that I prefer have rigid support braces along the bottom that run the length of it. And also, here's the catch for the big bags. They have wheels on the end, so you can just pull them along behind you through the airport. No big deal if you don't have a cart. And when they're partially empty or empty, when you get your destination, you've unloaded some of your gear, you can just shove them in the corner and they get smaller with less gear in them. It's no big, bulky, framed up suitcase there. So those are the reasons that I have for many years used hockey bags. Now they do wear out. So probably every two or three years, I've got to replace with another one. They're worn just through all the conveyor belts and stuff at airports. But there's nothing that compares to them for ease of use. The one thing you have to watch with them is some of them are big, so you watch your 50-pound maximum, or you'll be subject to an oversized fee, which can typically run 100 bucks. Nobody wants that. Sometimes if I'm worried about the weight, I'll pack a small duffel inside my hockey bag uh, at the airport, and if I need to pull something out, I can stick in a duffel for an extra 35 bucks or so, check it. But even better, of course, is just measuring the weight with a small, cheap scale at home before you leave, or I've even just stood on the the scale that we stand on for our own weight, pick up the bag, weigh it with me, carefully don't hurt your back, and weigh myself without it and make the subtraction. No big deal. Keep under the 50 pounds. Unless you're someone like my buddy Michael Morrow, who has a frequent flyer plan, and they love him, and he can check a bag up to 70 pounds. So envious. So just well, go to your sports. But let store. me ask you that. <laughs> Do you take... So are you just going out with just one bag? Is that your, you don't have an extra bag unless you use that additional bag. So do you feel like you can get everything for a trip, say to Alaska, you can get every trip, everything into that big duffel. Except for my think tank backpack with all my camera gear and my computer gear. But that's a carry on. That's right. Except for the carry on. And sometimes I'll do two carry ons. So if I need the space, uh, if it's a longer trip in my camera bag, my backpack's full, I'll take my laptop bag so I can put all hard drives and and chargers and stuff in that and so I've got those two carry-on which are permitted for the plane and then the answer to your question is yes I can fit everything in that one big hockey bag there's the odd time on a longer trip um, if it's going to be a three-week trip that I might have to take a second duffel and it'll be one half the size of the regular hockey bag just as an add-on and that's happened I've been there with you and had to borrow you were generous enough good friend to lend me a duffel bag to get back with because I picked up some gear and it wouldn't all fit in the hockey bag. So for the most part, it does work that way. But on the odd occasion, there's, there's a second check bag if it's a longer trip. So I had, I kind of had something similar on my list, but I had a bunch of them. So that it's no big deal, but just let me add what I do just so that you can kind of see how it rides on the back of what you do. I use the North face duffel bags and it's the double XL and these are super it's a lot like your, the bags you use, the hockey bags. They're pretty durable, but I think the North Face is even, you know, you were saying it last two or three years. I've got these bags that have lasted six or seven years. And my stuff is just, when you do put 70 pounds in a duffel bag, it gets worn hard. You know, it just conveyors and the all airport, that stuff at yeah. the airport. They just miles and miles of them in the back. You never see. Well, right? and then if it gets stuck, it'll just, the conveyors will sit there and wear on it and it'll like put a hole in it. So, and then I stay away from the one with wheels because when you do put 70 pounds in it, I can't tell you how many bags with wheels I get all excited because it does it, it gets rid of 
the possibility of having to get a cart somewhere. Now, just so all of our travelers know, when you travel anywhere outside of the U.S., carts are free. In the U.S., everywhere you go, carts cost <laughs> five, five bucks. bucks. Five bucks. And I've been in places lately where they're seven bucks, which really? no big deal. I mean, so you get seven bucks. But if I'm, if I'm going to Canada, I don't worry about it because you get off the plane and when you get to the luggage carousel, there's carts right there. So I've gotten rid of the ones that have the wheels because when you do put 70 pounds in there and the luggage guys are like, jostling it around or it's coming off the conveyor or they're throwing it in the luggage cart to bring it to the carousel i have never had one that didn't break so it just uh, the rails that you were talking about on the bottom they all break on me so but here's why mine tend to weigh so much what i like about the duffel bags is what you said you can just kind of cram all kinds of stuff in there and then when you get there it compresses and it's nice and small but a lot of times i'm taking big hard cases Big pelican cases. And in my mind, when you travel with a pelican case, what does that say? Oh, there's got to be something valuable in there, right? And I don't really ever put locks on these cases anymore because every one of them has to be a TSA lock. So somebody has a key somewhere. And most of them, you could take a pair of pliers and twist off the lock. I mean, you could put a big healthy lock on there, kind of. I don't know that I've seen that many that have a TSA key. So you're, you can't go put a master lock on there and have this big beefy lock on there, even though they'll fit on the hard cases. But what I do is I'll just take that case and put it inside the duffel. And then all of a sudden that, that case is no longer a case, a hard case. It's just a duffel bag that any traveler would have. So for security reasons, it comes in handy having a big duffel bag that I can put a big, you know, <laughs> the other thing I probably shouldn't say this. So when you go into Canada, and in your case, when you come into the U.S., you can get stopped at customs very easily because they're like, oh, you're working up here. You need to have a permit. And, you know, in most cases, we're not working unless we're out there. If we're just going out to do a stock shoot or something. So if they see big, you know, three big Pelican cases, they're going to stop me for sure. I guarantee you when I go into Canada or anywhere in the world. But if it's all in a duffel bag, it's like, oh, that's just another traveler. And you still get you run the risk of having someone ask you what you're doing, which is fine. Anybody can do that, but it just saves a little bit of time if you have it in a duffel bag and you just wheel right through because they think it's just a bunch of camp gear or whatever it is. So I use the North Face duffels just for that, the double XL, and they come and in we, really handy. If we have any listeners who uh, are photographers happen to work for TSA, we'd appreciate <laughs> if you keep that little tidbit to yourself. <laughs> well, the thing is. Now, if you are shooting freelance and you're shooting stock for yourself and you're going there to do that and then you know no matter which direction we're talking about here and you're not leaving anything nor selling anything while you're there and you're coming back and just selling it freelance, there's no assignment, there's no commitment, then that's permitted, right? It's if you're on an assignment or if you're somebody, if somebody, for instance, was doing a wedding, they're doing a product and they're leaving it there then that's where, you know, more paperwork is obviously required. But I think for nature and wildlife photographers, for those that aren't professional, obviously it's, it doesn't matter to begin with. But those that do sell, if it's freelance stock that you are taking back to your office and selling it from there and not in the, in the country you visited, then everything should be fine. Yes. The other thing I want to talk about with the bags was the price point. And maybe that's something I've seen your bags your duffel bags 
and they are durable, clearly, and, and, and way to go. But I guess the wheels always appealed to me. The price point for me for a hockey bag, I'm looking at about $70 for a good one. So I don't know how, how does that compare with the North Face duffels that you were talking about. And again, if they last twice as long and if they're twice as much, then maybe it makes sense. I do like the wheels. This was the first year, and this bag has traveled with me all over the place for a year and a half or two years. Um, that when I picked it up on the carousel, a wheel was busted off missing. I'm like, how the hell does that happen? <laughs> it's got rigid plastic rounded metal rod. I mean, you could throw this thing, you could drive over it almost, but no, that wheel was gone. So I duct taped it up and I've used it on a couple trips since, but anyway, so that, that's what I like the bag thing because of the pliable, flexible option. So the, the North face bags would work as well. Especially yeah, and I, they are probably double. I think they're like 150 or 160 bucks. But if you peruse the internet regularly, I can find them yeah. for 90 bucks. So a lot just, of times I'll just buy them for whenever I see them on sale, I'll just buy one and I won't use it till one wears out. So you can find them. It's a little bit more work to do that. <clears throat> and let me just say the reason I brought that up, Ron, about the TSA is one time I was doing a shoot in Canada. And it was a paid shoot. I was being paid to go up there to shoot. And I didn't know. I knew the rules, but I was also told by the company I was shooting for, ah, don't worry about it, it'll be fine. Not so much so. They made me sit in a corner and think about it for a long time. And then I was the last person out of this particular airport. And from that point forward, I've just always been leery. And, you know, most of the times when I'm going up there to do the wildlife thing, it's not, it is for stock or it is for, it's it's not for an assignment. So I'm not getting paid to go up there and shoot, but, but I can see where it comes in. I just try to eliminate any of those problems because the faster you can get in and out, as long as you're not doing anything wrong, you know, that's what I want to. That, that's this is a whole other podcast. We've got to we've got to get <laughs> off the subject because this, this, this is another leads, podcast. This leads perfectly into my first one, though. Oh, good. Okay, good. So let's travel tip first one for Ron. <laughs> uh, the first one is research, and it, you know, on a lot of different fronts. So the rules and regulations that could be one of those fronts that that you do need to research, depending on why you're traveling. You know, if you're going up, like we've already said just to take images for yourself, then you, you, no research is necessary. Um, but the other the other part of the research is, you know, what's the availability, what species are available, what's the best time of year? You know, who are, who are some people in the area that might be able to help you get to the right spots? And that's where social media is an advantage because you can, you can research that way, talk to, talk to people in those areas and uh, and get some ideas on when and where to be do some research if you're going to invest the money invest the time do the research necessary to make sure that your trip is as productive as it can be let me just add something to that with the research me, me it, too me too it kind of goes along with what we were talking about before so when i do travel out of the country there is a form that you can go in the u.s it's the u.s customs and border protection and every airport has one. And I'll go there and I'll get this form ahead of schedule. So you can download it off the internet. And I don't know if you guys can see this. And I don't. I guess we could put a link to it. But I'll fill out what the product is and its serial number. 
and then you're talking about your gear that you're taking with you exactly your camera gear yeah oh, now i've been to, to africa like 15 where, years ago well i've been to africa where it's really come in handy where i've been stopped both sides i've been stopped in the in africa and i've been stopped in the u.s coming back and it's kind of funny i mean i'm not going over there to buy something or sell something and i'm not trying to get away with anything but this just eliminates it so if you fill out this form put what it is with the serial number these guys i'll take it into the homeland security office they will spot check my gear they'll say okay you have a canon 100 to 400 on this list let me see it and i'll show it to them and they'll look on the serial number i have down and they'll look at the piece of gear and they'll say yep and then what ends up happening is you get an official stamp in that office and a signature, and then you take this piece of paper with you. And then what they what it does is it proves that, hey, this gear is not being taken somewhere to go be sold, or you're not, you know, you didn't buy something extra and come back with it, trying to evade tax or whatever it is. So doing your research like that. Now there's another step which is called a carnet. And you hire a company to, to fill out a carnet. So if we're doing a big shoot with a company and we have to take a bunch of product down there, that all go through, goes through a carnet company that will actually deal that for you. But this is a, one of those things that along the research lines, Ron, where it's comes in handy. And I basically just leave one. This gear changes all the time, but at least I have something with me if I don't. Like the last time I went to Canada, I didn't do it. I just ran out of time and I actually forgot to do it. So I took my old one just to thinking well i have the same camera bodies and i have the same lenses i'll probably be fine and i never was asked for it i've been asked for it a very few times but when i have been asked for it, it it's kind of mm -hmm. good to have so it's proper to have it i mean i used to do it every time i go through customs on the canadian side before going to the u.s i'd pull in with my gear and they and i had a card that you could add it to just like you said with the item the serial number and they'd stamp it and you'd have your list of items in that way. It was just for the purpose to prove that I didn't purchase it and bring it back without paying any duty. But it, I don't know. I mean, I, I did that for years, but I haven't for about 15 because just nobody ever said anything. That's not to say at some point they might, but then it's a matter of if you don't have the documentation to prove that you had that camera gear before entering the country, you have to prove somehow you had it before that trip began. Right. Right. How do you do that with a camera? Maybe there's something on the memory card that shows a photo was taken the week before on that camera before you got there. And you could prove it by showing the file info if, if they can interpret that as you do it on your laptop and accept that. But it could be a pickle. So the smart thing is to take the time to do it. But, yeah, it's something I'm glad you brought that up. That's a great formal, important travel tip. So you kind of. You got your first one in I can, with the bag. Are we counting that as one of yours? No, no, no. I have like a bunch more, yeah. Well, I, I, want, I want to throw in my, in, in my next one because it piggybacks onto Ron's. All right, go for a it. A little bit. So then, and then we'll, yeah, we're breaking the cycle a bit here. But So it's the same idea about doing research, and there's just a couple other aspects to it. Um, you know, Mike had some great insight as far as the bag and packing to add on to mine, and... Mine is like get the local lowdown, not just doing research. Like you do Google, Google, Google. You go down there, you do your search words for the location, and you will be surprised how easily some things come up. And not only that, but you can see great imagery often from these destinations to train your eye, like Ron was saying, what species, what the landscape's like, what to aspire to, what's capable, what's, what's possible there, sorry, to collect. But also, once you're there, 
well, and actually, let me add on to that. Um, you can check on social media too. So aside from Google, I'll go on Instagram, go into your search icon, your little magnifying glass at the top, type in a hashtag and hit the hashtag. So it could be that location. And then you'll see all the photos posted from that location. And on the left side of that, you'll see top on the right side, you'll hit recent. So hit the recent ones too. And that'll give you more information by searching hashtags on Instagram as to what you could expect on your trip, especially for time of year as well. But what I really like to do and what has proven to be as effective as any technique online is when I get there and when you meet people, when you meet locals or even other tourists, talk to them when you have the opportunity. Mention what you're doing. And most people love talking to wildlife and nature photographers. And they'll tell you their story. And what happens then? This saved my bacon last fall in Newfoundland. I met this nice couple from Maine. We got talking. I said I was looking for caribou and moose to photograph. And this gentleman pulled out his point-and-shoot camera. He said, look at this caribou stag that we photographed yesterday. And he was magnificent. And I'm like, oh, where was he? And, of course, they were, like, right at this spot. So where was I the next day? I was at that spot. And guess what? There was a caribou stag at that spot. I would not have known that because it was three hours away from where this conversation took place. I would never would have gone there. So by talking to people, I mean, and I was on an assignment in Newfoundland. I needed to produce material. Thanks to this couple in Maine, I got the best imagery of that trip. So talking to locals or other tourists, and I mean, nobody knows what goes on in their own backyard, like the people who live in these areas as well. So I just wanted to add that on. I'm going to kind of count it as one of my travel tips, but it's another, the information's there. Be friendly and people will be friendly back. And it's surprising what you can learn, uh, but just by having a conversation with people. Michael. All right, so this next tip for me is something I've learned over the years, and it's just a little, it's a tip that just makes it a little bit better when you travel. So for years, I would just pack all my stuff, I'd go somewhere, and we'd get to the place, and more times than not, you seem to get to a place late, right? And the last thing you want to do after you've been traveling all day is run to the grocery store and run get all the stuff that you need, or even go get a little bit of snacks, and then... You just go to the hotel and the last thing you want to do is go somewhere. So what I've started doing, and I've been doing this for like the last year, and I was a little leery at first, but I decided I would try it and we'll just see how it goes. I started packing bottles of water in my bag. And then I would also pack a few snacks, like, you know, just something healthy because it's easy to find junk food, right? But it's a little harder to find like a protein bar or something like that. So I've now started packing snacks and water and then here recently, well, no, I've been doing this for a lot of years. I'll pack my own coffee and my own coffee maker. And Mark, you've been a, uh, you've taken advantage of this many times. Beneficiary, um, yes. Yeah, a lot of times you get to a hotel and the coffee is just horrible. So I'm like, oh, it'd be so much better if I had my own coffee. So what I do with the water is, what my concern was is, is it going to make it? Is it legal to fly with water? You know, you don't want to do it with pop because if it did explode, you're going to have a pretty sticky bag, right? So as long as it's just water, I don't care if my clothes get wet with water because it'll dry. And But yet, to this day, I have never had anything break. And, and I've gotten to the point, in this last trip to Florida, I took 
a half a case of Perrier with me. I had enough weight in my allowance. And I knew we were going to a place that was out in the boonies in Florida. You wouldn't think there was a place in the boonies in Florida, but there is. We were in a place with really limited internet. There was nothing. It was 40 minute drive to the nearest little gas station thing. And it was so refreshing to know that in my bag, I had my water. I had plenty of snacks. I had my coffee. I had everything with me. And it's like I said, it's just, it works. It just, I show up, I've got everything I want. And then if we have time over the trip, We'll stop at a Target or we'll stop somewhere and get exactly what we want to supplement what you brought. But it is just really nice to get to a place and know that you've got everything. Now, a lot of hotels supply water, but I'm a fan of sparkling water, so that's a little snobby, I guess. But I'm making sure I have my Perrier with me and I've got my snacks and my coffee. And Do you, do you like glossy prints or matte prints? I was just going to ask the same <laughs> <laughs> I saw a comment on that. <laughs> you know, I, as much as I love you, Michael, and love traveling with you, I, I mean, I have to confess, a big part of it is about the coffee, buddy. Right? I make the best coffee. <laughs> I am such a coffee snob, you know. You wake the dead with that coffee. And it's so cheap. It's way cheaper than going and spending whatever you spend on a cup of coffee these days in the coffee shop. So, I don't know. That's just something I do. And it, I just like it. I just like having that, knowing that that's there. Well, it simplifies things. It's creature comforts. You rest easier. There's so many levels to this, so it makes sense. It does. I hate going to a place. You've been traveling all day. The last thing you want to do is go stop at a grocery store or go stop at a gas station or do whatever. And again, back on the snobby kind of Perrier sparkling thing is you go to Podunk, Texas, uh, they're probably not going to have Perrier or sparkling water of any sort. I'll drink regular water too. It doesn't matter, but it's, it's just a creature. But then comfort. you lose a little bit of that sparkle and you don't want you, to lose your sparkle. You don't lose the, you lose the zip in your step. All right. Well, so that's, that's one of mine. It's kind of cheesy, but it's what I do. No, that was a good one. That was a good one. I like how simple it is. And, and some of them, my next one is actually comparatively straightforward, but Ron, we'll go for it. Well, it, when we were talking about doing this podcast on travel, it's, it's kind of tough to taper it all down because you don't know what, you know, you could come at this thing from several different directions. And it, de it does depend on the, the kind of trip that you're taking. But if you're going to have an opportunity to get out and do some photography, my next tip was just to be intentional. And that is, you know, be intentional as far as what kind of equipment you take. Uh, be intentional about the type of research that you do or what you intend to get out and and photograph. And don't you know, it's tough to plan a photography trip where you're just going to kind of take what you get. So, you know, you want to focus your efforts. And I guess that is that is where that's coming from. And if, if it's a trip, you're going with the family, but you're going to have some time to go do some photography, then be intentional with the time that you spend. You know, when I when I travel with family, most of the time... Everybody else, everybody else in my family sleeps in. And so I will get up and, and my mornings are my photography time. And uh, so that's, you know, that's one way that you can be intentional, but focus on those areas that you're going to spend time at, the, the species that you're going to spend time trying to photograph, but make sure that you're, you have a plan, I guess, is, is another way to, to go at that one. 
I like yeah. it. Yeah. And it worked for me. You know, I like that idea because if they are sleeping in and they don't want to go out for that sunrise few hours to wildlife nature photo shoot, then you can. And if it takes longer and you're gone half the day because something amazing is happening, I found when the kids were young and they were on trips with me as a family, when we did overlap uh, occasionally that way, then everybody got to go for ice cream when when I got back. <laughs> 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 that helped which so this this and it's talking about food then i'll spin into my next travel tip were you finished with that one i don't want to yeah yep. okay that was a good one about food management now this is straightforward to me so on a lot of my trips i'm based out of a vehicle of some sort uh, at least while stocking up or at least a component of the trip there may be some backcountry there may be some camping a few days here and there but on a longer trip there's always a vehicle home base so what I'll do when I stock up at the destination, when I've landed and getting everything together, the next day, wherever we've slept the night before, like Michael was saying, when you get there, you want to be set up to begin with. But when you're set up for the trip, I go to a store in a lot of these places, like in Alaska with Fred Meyer, stuff like that. There are these big stores that have everything from a grocery store to all kinds of other amenities. When I'm buying my food, the first thing I do is go buy a rubber container, a plastic container, a bin. For 10 to 15 bucks, one of these plastic tubs holds all my food in the vehicle, in the trunk. Why? It live and learn because I had them in plastic bags. I'd drive around. They'd roll around. I didn't know what was in what bag, where things were. It all goes in this tub, and you can organize it and move it so easily. And that will feed into my next travel tip that will come up momentarily, but all the food goes in these plastic tubs, you get a lid with them, and it just it keeps everything organized and together and simplifies that part of the trip. And then what you do is you have a bonus gift for some local photographer when you leave, right? Well, that's true. Yeah, locals do get that stuff. I have more than one occasion. There have been not just cans of beans, but there have been things left. Obviously, you know, you I have a tendency to overpurchase more often than under. You know you're going in for 10 days or something. So oh, that's another live and learn. I remember one of my first times on one of these remote north trips, my buddy Bob, who I talked about a couple of weeks ago on the podcast on the Alaska, amazing, one of our best day adventure podcasts where all three of us talked about one of our most epic experiences filming wildlife in Alaska. My friend Bob from Seattle, Washington accompanied me. And we, on our first trip together, he had a Chevy Astro. They were four by four, right? Yeah. It was a heavy frame. He had a roof rack. Oh, it was a great trip. You know, I'd been on this trip once before. I'd rented uh, a Ford Expedition. And for some reason, the rental Ford Expedition had two-ply tires. Well, two-ply tires don't cut it on the edge of the tundra. And we had two flats on my first trip. So I told Bob, I said, bring some heavy-duty tires. Well, Bob, bless his heart, had like 14-ply crazy tires, had two on the roof. Anyway, we went in to get our groceries. We each took a cart and took off. We came to the front, and Bob, I can't tell you how many swear words came out of his mouth when he saw our carts and wondered how we were going to fit all this into his Astrovan and our butts in there to sleep and camp and stuff like that. So there's definitely a tendency to overpurchase, uh, and that's something with more and more traveling. You know, I've refined what to purchase, and not to overdo it as well. And I do, you know, sorry, Andrew, I do, I do stay away from the ravioli now too. Anyway, put it in a plastic tub. It's 
manageable, easy speaking, to look. Speaking of that, I don't think any of us for the next three or four years are going to have to have to buy any oatmeal when we go to Alaska. Breakfast is breakfast is covered for all. Ron kind of overdid it this year, and uh, there's a whole plastic container of oatmeal. Yeah. The other thing about the plastic containers that I like, I, I was going to throw this in when you were talking about that. They, uh, if you do end up in a tent, I mean, if you're in a vehicle, you've got a little bit of protection anyway, but if you end up in a tent, the plastic containers also add a, a degree of rodent proofing. So you, you don't end up with your plastic bags all chewed up and your food gone. Yeah. You, well, and if there's no bears around, you could do that, but even if yeah, yeah. you could also, you know, depending on your setup, you could pick up these a plastic container again for the price point of ten or fifteen bucks. And if you wanted something waterproof to put your extra clothing in, then you've got that too in your tent. If you are going to be subject to the weather, and you can park it that way. So, right. right on, Michael, go for it. All right. So another thing I've learned over the years is whether you're in a hotel or you're in a car, it doesn't matter. A power strip will save your bacon. Because nowadays you're charging all these batteries, you're charging your computer, you're charging so is this your before phone. So I, you know, I'm on the road a lot, doing a lot of these these jobs where we're shooting around the country, and I'll check into all these little hotels that have limited power. You know, they'll have one outlet that's like hidden behind the nightstand, or you're in a car that might have a power outlet, but it's a one outlet. But you've got to charge your phone, you've got to charge your computer, you've got to charge your batteries, and unless you want to be waking up all night and changing stuff in and out so you get everything charged for the next day what i've started doing is taking a little power strip with me and the power strip that i've been using lately has like three little plugins and two usb plugins so i can plug in my usb stuff like my phone and whatever else and then i have three outlets for and with me i tend to have you know I'll have video batteries i'll have light batteries i'll have camera batteries i'll have just tons of different batteries so being able to plug all this stuff in and not have to wake up in the middle of the night with an alarm to just make sure you switch that stuff out. It's just one of those little creature comforts. And more and more, it becomes more and more important because we have, all of us have to charge so much. Even people that don't do what I do with the extra video and the extra lights and all that kind of thing, your phone, your computer, and your camera batteries right there is three things. So, And to go back to the, the research part to tie into that one, what kind of outlets are you going to have? So depending on where you're at, I mean, if you're going to Europe, you're going to have a different type of outlet, Asia, Australia, there's all different kind of power outlets. So make sure you figure out what you're going to have and make sure you have the proper converters for those power sources. And that's where a power strip, because you only have to have one converter where a power strip comes in handy. Yep. I think, I think that's one of the best travel tips yet. I love how straightforward it is, but it makes so much sense in 2019. You need that. And I want to say, to my defense, as a Canadian, I believe we call those power bar. Oh, and I know power it's not bar. like not like <laughs> an edible power bar either, so there's some confusion there. But So the power strip had me going there. But, the, yeah, the power bar with all the, the multi-plugins. And, yeah, look for one with USB ports, right? Yeah. That's awesome. Well, and a lot of times I'll get to a hotel, and how many times have you been there, and the little nightstand has a little light, and on the bottom of the light is a little plug-in, and it's not the three-prong plug-in, it's just a two-prong, or sometimes it is a three-prong, 
and you stick your little charger in there and it's been plugged into so many times that it it will not you can't plug it in and have it be a consistent energy source so you're you're taping it and you're doing all this stuff to get it to work with the power strip i found that they'll they'll go in there and bind up and and you'll have constant power without having to worry about it i don't know it's just i use it all the time now i can't go anywhere without one well thank you i've never done that and i'm from now on i'm gonna have a power strip bar in my bag <laughs> comes in handy right on right on well, and they're, and they're just not convenient locations, right? So if you need four or five plugins in a hotel room, inevitably one's behind the bed or something. It's right. an inconvenient spot, to, and you want all your stuff together. You want it on the workstation, on the desk, instead of on the rug in the corner of the room. Who knows where? So I, I mean, I'm kind of tidy that way. So I want it all up off stuff on the surface, and that facilitates that. Yep. Bang! Boom! Well done. Well, the management thing with the food and the plastic tub kind of feeds into my next one and sometimes I like to go glamping where imagine I that <laughs> 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 I like the glossy prints so it's smart on these trips to prep your ride and you know often it's a rental vehicle that I've got now I've learned to fine-tune this stuff over the years over the couple of decades to keep it simple and to make it work. And I'll rent a vehicle that will allow me to sleep in it so that I can stay mobile. So there are times where, you know, I'll be in a backcountry camp, I'll be camping, I'll be hiking. There'll be times where I, I get to rent a cabin or I'll be in a hotel like Michael was in Florida last week or on a campsite. The campsite situation, I like to rent a minivan or a large SUV so Dodge Caravan or a large SUV like a, a Chevy uh, Tahoe or Yukon or Suburban Expedition. Now, why these specific vehicles is that the back, aside from the front bucket seats, everything else folds flat into the floor. Double check on that in your rental when you do it, of course. But by folding flat, it gives six to eight feet of flat space. The next thing I do is I go to a place, and now in Alaska, for instance, Fred Myers, or you can go anywhere to any kind of big department store and get a foam mattress. Get a four-inch piece of foam. They come in different densities. Be wary of that. For 20 bucks, I can get that. It covers the whole back, two of them, covers the whole back of the vehicle for very comfortable sleeping and warm. Now, if you can't find suitable foam, you can get an air mattress, but I caution with air mattresses, whether you're camping or glamping in a van or an SUV, there's no insulation under you with an air mattress. So if it's colder, climate time, colder seasonality, then be cautious. Make sure you've got an extra sleeping bag or blankets under you, something for insulation, because otherwise your heat will just get sucked away through the air mattress. Thirdly, and this is so easy to do and pack, and everybody who's into adventure and exploring the outdoors should have a thermarest of some sort because they pack down so well and they are great at insulating. And for only being, you know, three quarters or an inch thick are surprisingly comfortable and supportive. So that's what I put across the back of the vehicle. And then all the gear goes on top. Camera bags on top, the food storage bin on top. And we're ready to roll. We're ready to roll in minutes that morning. A couple of minutes, up and at him, off we go. And our whole kit, our whole unit is rolling. And the thing about that that's advantageous is 
if the next night we find we have traveled a long way and want to camp somewhere else, we've got everything with us. It's all set up. We park and then the camera bags. Well, first the food bin, the plastic tub goes on the front seat, camera bag on top of that, bed is ready, everything's set. So, and it's also warmer. You're out of the elements a bit more in the vehicle. Uh, it's helpful in the center of grizzly country and you've got some food in your vehicle. Um, mind you, I keep that scent reduced anyway myself, but the plastic tubs help with that. So this style of travel just simplifies as well as maintaining some creature comforts for these adventurous trips. And it's something that I've just adapted over the years when necessary. If, there, if I'm not, if I do have the opportunity to have a vehicle versus backcountry camping, or if there's no cabin to stay in, then these larger vehicles to rent uh, make sense for this application. Quick hack on that. If I roll the windows up all the way, it's a bit of a job in the morning with condensation on the inside because of the breathing. So over, the, over all those hours at night. So crack, if it's not pouring rain, uh, I crack the windows a half an inch or so at the front or on the back. Some of them have these panel windows. I'll open a little bit just to allow for some fresh air and minimize the condensation on the interior of the windows in the morning. You can't clean it off, but it means bringing a towel or having some paper towels to do that. So by cracking the windows, that takes that off the uh, equation as well. I got to second that one because the minivan for me is the ticket. And, it, and, it, and I don't know about all of them, but the rental cars that I tend to use more than others, they all have the Dodge Caravan or the Chrysler. Town and country. Something like that. I just had one the other day that was just super fancy. It had the heated seats. It had a heated steering wheel. It's got USB ports at the back of every seat. It was amazing. But the seats do fold flat, so you get a nice flat surface. Now, in the in the minivans, they'll kind of they'll roll off from the back to the front and have a little decline, so you always got to sleep with your head to the back by the tailgate. But if you have the mattress pad like you have with that foam pad, that is the ultimate. That's like sleeping on a king-size bed. Or if you have a thermarest, that's perfect. It'll You can throw some stuff underneath thermarest, get it all nice and even. And it's just as good with minus a shower as a hotel room, in my opinion. Well, it's far cheaper. You've got the rental vehicle anyway. If you're going to rent a car for a week, you know, you're going to up it maybe 150 bucks, perhaps, or depending on where you go and seasonality for the minivan. And you have everything all in one and you can be where, you know, you don't have to have that. I mean, you might need reservations for campsites, depending if it's busy. Thankfully, a lot of our subject matter in autumn, a lot of our destinations that we go to aren't busy. If we need a camping site, often the places we go, we can just pull in some remote place and sleep too. So it's just everything. It keeps it together. Yep. You know, your okay. everything's there and, and it really, uh, it's quite comfortable. One other little tip on that is those vehicles tend to be a little bit more expensive, but you factor that against the price of a hotel room or a cabin, you're going to be on par or less in most cases. So well, caravan, especially they're not, they're not too bad. The SUVs that you can hit and miss on those. Right. And there've been times, here's another little, this is a hack. Here's a travel hack. I've rented a caravan and wanted an SUV because it was, the seasonality was changing, you know, in the remote areas, it could be a chance of snow. I want the all wheel drive. I'll, when I get there, I'll say, do you have a full size SUV that you'd be willing to switch out for? Sometimes they've done it for the same rate because they don't have the demand for the SUVs. They do for the, for the minivans. So like, yeah, this is SUV sitting here. We'll switch it out. 
and I've had it for the same rate. And then I have all wheel drive for when I need it. Other times there's a bit of a bump in fee, but you can look at all that online. And, and some destinations are far more reasonable than others depend on both these vehicle types. And one thing I also want to caution people on is the insurance. So for my rental vehicles, I have insurance through my credit card. I pay about $100 a year. It covers all my rental vehicles and it covers my medical insurance and covers my medical insurance for my immediate family members if they happen to be traveling with me. What I did not realize, and this is, a, this is worth some chuckles here, I did <laughs> not realize that my car rental insurance did not cover a truck chassis. It was only up to the size of a truck chassis, which included all cars and, yes, minivans. But for years, I was renting Ford Expeditions or Suburbans or Tahoes. I mean, we're talking eighty dollars or $90,000 trucks. Thinking I had insurance, I'd wave it at the rental counter. And I said, nope, my card covers it. And off I went on these trips and did my thing. Thank goodness, never had an accident or a problem because my insurance did not cover a truck chassis. So now, when I do switch out, I mean, it still doesn't cover it. So when I switch from a minivan to a truck, uh, the SUV, if I need it for that trip, uh, I had a trip two years ago, I took two buddies on, it was not going to work in the minivan. So we had the SUV, nor do we all sleep in there. We tended it as well, of course. But just for the amount of gear, we upgraded to this to the SUV, sorry, and I paid the extra $250 for insurance for the rental to cover that through the rental company's policy. So that option is there. Just be aware of what your own insurance covers if you have it in place. And at that rate, all you have to show back up with is a steering wheel, right? <laughs> okay, there's another story. <laughs> so let me tell you about one of my trips to Vegas. <laughs> I was in Vegas, and this is how the culture, I mean, we were, we were just enjoying the lights, the glamour. My, we went to get a rental car, and my buddy and I, we go up to the counter, and this lady says, do you want insurance? I'm like, no, I don't want insurance. It's, I have it covered on my card. Thank you very much. She says, no, no, no. You want the insurance. I'm like, why? She says, I tell you what, I'm going to give you this car. I'm going to give you this convertible sports car. I'm going to upgrade you. This car just came in. It has no miles on it. It's brand new. You're the first to get it. And when you bring it back, you can just drive it into that fountain over there. <laughs> 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 I said, can we, can we do, you know, can we drive it into the Grand Canyon? Whatever you want. You just pay this extra so much a day. So going with the vibe, of course, it's like, well, I'll take that. I'll take that insurance. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So one other thing that I had to do on the serious side of things with the rates, all of us know uh, a photographer that comes over a lot from Europe, and he oftentimes rents through Costco. And if you, you can go directly to these rental car companies and it's, you're going to pay whatever rate they have on their website for that area. But a lot of times you can get it from the same place through Costco for a fraction of the cost. So if you happen to be a Costco member, that's well worth checking out. Now, sometimes it's not the airport location. It's offsite. And if you have the time built into your budget, you could Uber it to the rental car place from the airport. But he was saving, I think for what I was paying 70 or 80 bucks a day for, he was paying like 25. Yeah, it was. So even yeah, the cost good. of your Uber is still going to be less than your overall rate. If you're doing a 10-day trip, it's going to be way less. So just check it out. I mean, that's just, I had never heard of that before. And I knew Costco did it, but I never even thought about checking it out. And now, I, as I understand it, 
more and more locations are right at the airport. So check Costco mm-hmm. out. Good tip. Good tip. And right. offsite's important too. Yeah. I've had that. I mean, not often, but once in a blue moon, I'll check an airport site and I'm like, oh man, that's insane. I can't pay that much. Then I'll look up the same company that might be 10 miles across town, not even, just across the city. And I think I, lately I haven't had luck with this, and I don't know if they've if they've adjusted it on their online uh, websites. But I was able to call them and book it for like half the price, pay the thirty dollar cab ride or, or get the Uber ride, and that was nothing compared to the savings of just going across the city to the same companies, different location, not with all the airport fees. So it's something worth checking. Yep, that works in Alaska bigger... a lot at the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. Go to the Enterprise downtown and. You might save two or three or four hundred bucks. And I think what it is is a lot of these airports have all these surcharges, right? That you have to pay. But yeah. if they're off site, then you don't pay those those fees. Right on. All right. Yeah. There's another one that we've beat up, but hopefully it's good information. That was that was good, yeah. Course, yeah. A lot of a lot of different angles there. <laughs> all right, who's next? Ron. For sure. It's Ron. I think I, I think I am. You are restricted by weight. Sometimes you're restricted by the there are sometimes restrictions on the size of bags you can take in addition to having weight restrictions on, uh, on these trips. And so one of, the, one of the things that you need to prioritize is what you're going to need to be redundant with. There's a lot of things that you can get away with taking one of or two of, you know, take a couple pairs of pants, multiple pairs of underwear, <laughs> um, but you can get away with washing some laundry a lot of times while you're while you're in the field, even if it's just in a stream and air dry them. Uh, but there are some things that you do need to be redundant with, and I would say first and foremost is your cards. Uh, secondly, you need to have the ability to back some things up, uh, back your files up multiple times. So taking a couple extra hard drives. And the, you know that Samsung Samsung just came out with a sale on that uh, SSD drive that we talked about several weeks ago. You know I know Michael uses uh, some different SSD drives, but these SF, SSD drives that have come out recently, uh, they're fairly reasonably priced and they don't weigh anything at all. I mean you're talking a matter of ounces, so there's no excuse for not having the ability to uh, redundantly back your files up while you're in the field. So make sure that you you prioritize extra cards and and some extra external drives to be able to back your files up. That's a good one. I was going to touch on that too. Um, well, I I wasn't because I figured one of you guys would do it, but it makes <laughs> a huge difference. And it's the SanDisk and the Samsung are both pretty comparable in price, but it does save a ton of space. I love my bag is way different. My my carry on bag is way different in weight now compared to what I used to do with the bigger bigger drives. And this is applicable for hikes too, right? I mean, we think of our caribou hikes. We, you know, odds are we're not. You see a caribou, it's half a mile away, or three quarters of a kilometer away, and you're going to hike to it, but it doesn't stay there, and you end up. You think. I mean, this is off a mistake that historically I would make. I just. And I've touched on this in other podcasts. I wouldn't take enough gear. I'd grab my telephoto and just go. But what ends up happening, you know, at first it looks like, oh, there's a great photo opportunity. I'm going to go and get that photo. But really, it, it expands into half a day because if the caribou accepts our presence and we hike with it, then 
all kinds of other opportunities come up and you want to stay in the game. You don't want to have to hike all the way back to the vehicle to get more supplies of anything. So, you know, lightweight is important for these hikes. And me, I like to carry this stuff with me. I don't want to leave it locked on the side of some remote road in the rental car, rental truck, rental van. I want those drives with me. So the smaller they are, the less weight on my back because I'm taking them, right? So that's a great tip. And and it's applicable not only for the carry-on, but for these hikes for someone like me who won't leave their hard drives in the vehicle. But there are other things I'll just tag on to that too, if you don't mind, because when I spin it into these hikes, it's a matter of taking the gear you're going to need. And like I said on the Alaska podcast, when Bob got the shot of the two bull moose sparring with the whole Alaska range, amazing. I couldn't get it. And I didn't have a lens that would go that wide. So you know, the camera pack comes with me now all the time. But in the camera pack, it's prepared ahead of time. And so not only do you have the memory cards, there's extra batteries. There's, um, you know, some power bars because how many times... I can't tell you I've gone on hikes that have ended up being six hours and I didn't take food with me. I had my son with me on one of the hikes, a teenage growing boy, man. And he's like, dad, I'm hungry. I'm like, eat blueberries till you know, you're content. But (laughs) as delicious as they were, that wasn't cutting it, you know? So I have a whole, you know, half a dozen different power bars in there um, to carry me through. And then uh, a, a water filter thing, because you're going to need to drink from some stream somewhere. And a life straw is super easy and no weight and just slips into the pack as well. And then there's just the common sense stuff. Like I always uh, take an extra pair of Merino underlayers, long sleeve, up and bottom, especially for the shoulder seasons of spring and, and fall and early winter. And why? It's not just because it'd be cold, but because after a three-hour hike, I'm guaranteed to have sweat that stuff out. And sure, it wicks it away, but it's not warm anymore if the wind picks up. It's so refreshing to put on a dry underlayer when you finish or partway through as soon as you start to get a chill. And then there's the shell as well, and always pack a lighter and a headlamp with extra lithium batteries. Just all this precautionary stuff because it's small, it's compact, it's lightweight, have it in your pack. Obviously, you can't take the lighter and stuff on the plane. You pick that up at the destination. You, you prepare your gear so that when you do the field hikes that look like they're going to be 20 minutes but end up being six or seven hours, you can stay with it. Because after all, you're there. You've made all this effort, and it's an amazing space to be in with these animals. Don't cut it short for lack of preparedness. So all that stuff fits into that pack and that gear. So just to add that on to the SSD drives as well. Absolutely. Michael. Traveling so much like I do all the time, I have gotten really leery about security with hopping on the internet. And I, I notice a lot of people don't worry about it, but I'm, I don't know. I listen to a lot of tech podcasts and these guys are constantly talking about it. And I don't know what the percentage of time that you might run into a problem is, but everywhere I go now is I have a secondary router that I take with me. And when I go to a hotel, I'll hook my router up and I'll connect to the hotel internet or I'll do it at a coffee shop. Anywhere I go, I have this router and you guys can see it because I'm holding it up over uh, Skype. We can put a link in to this particular router. It's a D-Link 750. It's the size of a phone basically. And what it does is I can hook it into their internet and then I can put my own security on this 
and then hook my devices into this, which then accesses their internet. And what it does is it's just that added layer of security. So one thing that prompted me to do this is you go into a hotel and you hook up into this, the internet. If you look under network devices, when you're hooked into somebody else's internet, oftentimes you can see everybody's computer that's hooked up to that internet. Now me, I'm not smart enough to know what to do if I wanted to try to access those computers. Most of them are locked down with passwords and stuff. But for a lot of people, that's a pretty simple hack, right? If they know what they're doing, they can get into your computer in no time flat. So this little device is pretty sweet and gives me a whole added layer of security. And what the network sees is this device. They don't see any of my personal devices, whether it's an iPad or an iPhone or a phone of any any sort or my computer so it's this particular little device too also acts as a battery charger so it's an external battery as well as a router and i don't i won't hook onto an internet an external internet anywhere unless i have this now maybe it's overkill and maybe i don't need to worry about it but i do listen to enough tech podcasts where they it's comes highly recommended and I picked up this particular device off of one of their recommendations. So I never have any problems with it. It's super easy to connect. I just do it through my browser. So my browser can see, you know, I type in the address of this router and then I connect through that to that internet. Super easy. And then my internet is constantly connected through this device. And you just get that added layer of security. And I don't remember what it costs, but I'll, we'll put a link in the show notes to it. But a super sweet thing. I don't know if you guys do any sort of thing or worry about it like I do, but man, Probably you can never be enough. too safe. I did, when we were in Colorado, it was the first time you showed me your your setup, and I thought it, it was a good idea. I mean, you look at all the, not just any particular entity or social media outlet, all the fraud that goes on daily. Well, it's, yeah, I think that's a great tip, and and you know, I don't have one. I should have one, and it's small enough to fit in the gear kit and not be cumbersome. I just have a data plan that I don't use hotels. I just use mine. You know, when I travel, I don't use the airports. I don't use the coffee shops. I do it on mine, and I pay a little extra at the end of the month sometimes because of it. Uh, I like your suggestion better for those opportunities, and I think it's only wise to. And and even if it's a I have no idea what the statistical odds are of, of being hacked, but if it happens once, that's too many. Right. And we've got, right. we've got our hard drives there. We've got all our information. Obviously there's personal information on people's laptops or their phones. So for the effort, the minimal effort and minimal expense, this is an incredible travel tip. Another one home run out of the park. Yep, we'll get a link in the show notes. And like like you just said, I have no idea how risky it is. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if people, hackers sit in hotels and they're like, oh, I'm going to go see what this person's doing or I'm going to go see what's on this computer. I don't know. But it's just that added layer of security. Well, if, if these people on the other podcasts, these tech podcasts that you're listening to have been mentioning it as a concern, then obviously it happens yeah, somewhere. Exactly. It does happen for sure. You know, I guess if you're in Podunk, Somewhere, the chances are pretty slim, but, um, you know, I travel to a lot of different cities and stuff, and you just never know. And it's super fast. I don't have a problem with speeds or any. You would think you add another layer in there, but I really can't tell when, I'm, when I have this thing as compared to just being on. So I don't, I don't think it matters where you're at because the hackers are in their overseas 99.99% of the time. So if they're going to 
if they're going to go after you, they're going to go after everybody. And I, I think it's a, a good tool. It's a good little personal firewall, basically, to add on to to protect your personal information. Yep. All right. So what do we have for numbers? I've added on significantly. I don't know if those count. I, have, I can throw another one out there. I mean, here's a simple one. And often people don't do it because of their egos. But if there's time available, a half day or a full day on a trip, and it happens to be a destination like a national park, and there are natural history tours, take it. Go on it. Learn about the park. And often, especially if it's a good guide, you'll learn about where animals are, what the odds of seeing them, and maybe even see some that you can go on your own at another opportunity to go and film and photograph. So information is the key if there's time um, and the visitor center talking to the staff there any 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 place like that what's going on lately friendly conversation just like talking to the locals i alluded to earlier can shine a lot of uh, light onto what's happening at that point in time but a tour can do that and i know there are places that run these that it, it, it really is worth it and, and informative to take them when there's opportunity yeah and the other thing to to piggyback on that, we're going to make the world's longest podcast because there's all these uh, rabbit holes. But uh, you can do that in the middle of the day when you it, the photography is not that great. So go learn about it while you don't want to shoot. And then as soon as it's done, then you can go shoot either what you just learned or just go spend some time. Good. That's a good point. Yeah, it doesn't have to be dur during good light. That's right. All right, Ron, number five. Number five is to uh, prioritize. And, you know, these trips we're talking about, a lot of these are applicable to uh, flying to a location, but it doesn't have to be a location that you fly to. Shoot a photography trip can be, you know, in, in your own area. You still have to do some preparation for that. Um, but if you do have some, some trips that you want to do, what I would say is to prioritize. I have, you know, one of the images that I want that I'm going to get someday is the snow monkeys, the Japanese macaw. And the reason is, and I think I've shared this before, it's the first picture that I ever saw that made me want to be a wildlife photographer. It was, I was a kid. I lived on a, on a ranch 40 miles from the nearest town in, you know, northern Wyoming. And the only magazine that we got out there was National Geographic. On the cover of National Geographic was this Japanese macaw. That is a trip that I'm going to take. But it, I, I need to have a little bit more opportunity to to justify that until the until the budget is such that it doesn't matter anymore. And I don't know that I'll ever be at that point. But prioritize the locations that you're going to go. And honestly. If you make some of these locations a priority, takes you two, three years to save up. I promise you, if you've done your research, you've you've put the time in, you've saved your pennies to to take these trips with the wild and exposed crew in the future. Um, it, it's going to be worth it. Your the memories that you bring back from that trip are going to be worth the effort. Um, so prioritizing saving and just be being ready to live it up you know i can't stress enough i i always say 
you know, it's, it's time to live now. Don't wait till it's too late. But I understand that, you know, these things are going to have to be budgeted for, planned for. Make these things a priority. Get out and, and take a trip once in a while just to, just to live. See something that you can't see in your home state, can't see in your home province. Get out and, and find something new and just relish the experience. I've got a quote. I've got a quote that I saw on a plaque in my dentist's office that I have to follow it up with. Live your life, take chances, be crazy, don't wait, because right now is the oldest you've ever been and the youngest you'll be ever again. That sums it so, up. I like that. And nothing feeds my soul like the kind of trips we do. So, absolutely. Amen to that. So, in the show notes for today's podcast... All this information will be there. Those links will be there. I'll be going to a couple of these links myself to check it out. I hope that you've enjoyed our travel tip extravaganza and that you found at least a few of them to be insightful and useful. In closing, I want to thank our talented and hardworking producer, Missy McKenzie, for all that she does to create this podcast for your listening enjoyment. I would also like to take a moment and ask that no matter which podcast platform you're listening to is on to make sure to click on the follow or subscribe icon it's free and to give us a positive review a five-star rating or a thumbs up as those allow us to do what we love to do and to bring you this podcast on a weekly basis please take the time to spread the word about our show we invite you to share our wild and exposed facebook page contents with your friends and colleagues you can also see more of our team's content on Instagram, Facebook, and on our YouTube channel. And of course, on our website at wildandexposed.com. Until next time, you've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.